A reading from Isaiah 38, 14 to 20. Like a swallow or a crane, I clamor. I moan like a dove. My eyes are weary with looking upward. O oh Lord, I am oppressed by my security. But what can I say? For he has spoken to me, and he himself has done it. All my sleep has fled because of the bitterness of my soul. O oh Lord, by these things people live, and all these is the life of my spirit. O oh, restore me to health and make me live. Surely it was for my welfare that I had great bitterness, but you have held back my life from the pit of destruction, for you have cast all my sins behind your back. For Sheol cannot thank you. Those who go down to the pit cannot hope for your faithfulness. The living, the living they thank you, as I do this day. Fathers make known to your children, to children your faithfulness. The Lord will save me, and we will sing to stringed instruments all the days of our lives at the house of the Lord. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. We're almost there. We're almost done with Isaiah for the summer, so, which means we're almost halfway through the book of Isaiah. Uh, it has been uh, an interesting journey through Isaiah. This is my first real um, attempt to kind of systematically work my way studying and praying and, and really wrestling with a lot of the stuff in Isaiah. And... Um, it's been interesting to hear these ancient themes and these ancient stories and just to see a lot of uh, practical application, a lot of challenge, a lot of encouragement uh, through these, these pages um, when the scripture writers say God's word is, is alive, is, is living. Um, I think that's what it means is that these ancient words continue to speak to us and um, I, I hope these words have been as challenging to you as they have been to me, as they were to um, the people of Judah uh, quite a long time ago. As we look at uh, this story that's in chapters uh, 36, 37, and 38, uh, this morning, would you pray with me? Jesus, we thank you that your word does continue to inspire, continue to uh, point us to you, uh, continue to challenge us with what it means to live as uh, disciples of Jesus in 2021. We thank you for these stories. As we look at uh, these closing chapters of Isaiah, uh, the first part this morning, uh, may the words of my mouth and meditation of our hearts be pleasing to you. In Jesus' name, amen. And well, the story that happens in Isaiah 36, 37, and 38, um, which if you didn't read this week, hopefully you can go home and read that this afternoon, 
it's pretty easy read compared to some of the chapters we've dealt with in Isaiah, which are uh, filled with lots of uh, places and lots of names that are kind of... It, look, I'll be honest, it's hard to read through some of those ancient names, right? Um, I'm not going to pretend I'm holier and, and have a, a better grasp on some of those names than anyone else. Um, but these chapters are pretty easy to read through. There's a story happening. Uh, something is unfolding. It's a story that is shared with 2 Kings 18 through 20. And, and actually, if you kind of go and read those chapters, 2 Kings 18 through 20, it'll give you a little bit more background into the story that's happening here in Isaiah. And so uh, there's some references that Isaiah makes. Um, there's this, this person, this cupbearer. Uh, we'll get to him in a little bit, who comes and, and accuses Hezekiah of tearing down the places of worship. You can read more about why he's accusing Hezekiah of that in the Second Kings passage. Uh, Isaiah doesn't really get into why Hezekiah is doing that. We'll explain that here in a little bit. Uh, but So you can get a little bit more information from those Second Kings chapters. In these chapters, though, Judah has sought an alliance with Egypt against the kingdom of Assyria. Assyria has conquered Israel and uh, has sent Israel into exile. And now Assyria has captured the cities uh, surrounding Jerusalem. And they are at the gate. They are awaiting to come and to conquer Jerusalem itself. And that's where we are in chapter 36. The king of Assyria sends his army against Jerusalem. And there's this, this person, this uh, official called the Rabshakeh, which is kind of a cupbearer or chief steward. He's an important if official that's sent on behalf of the king of Assyria to come and to bring this message against Jerusalem and against Hezekiah. And so he comes and he stands at the gate and he basically says, what makes you think that you can stand against the army of Assyria? He says, you're relying on Egypt and Egypt is old news and will break down. And if you say you rely on Yahweh, isn't your king tearing down the very places of worship across Judah? This is, again, is where 2 Kings helps us understand that Hezekiah had been tearing down places of worship in Judah. They were places of idol worship, of foreign worship. They were not places of worshiping Yahweh. They were worshiping these false idols. And Hezekiah had kind of tried to reform the kingdom of Judah, had tried to restore the worship of Yahweh. And we can read more about that in 2 Kings, um, also 2 Chronicles, which we talked about a couple years ago, would also help us understand that Hezekiah is really seeking to bring about worship of the one true God. And so this uh, official is really twisting the story of what's happening. Instead, the Rabshakeh mocks Jerusalem. He says, you trust in Egypt for horsemen. And, and by mocking them, he says, I'll give you a bunch of horses and we'll see how many riders you can fill on it. I bet you can't do it. I bet I have more horses, more uh, military strength, more soldiers than you do. I bet you couldn't even fill the horses that I give you. And yet you've trusted in Egypt for your strength. 
Then the Rabshaka says that actually Yahweh himself has sent us to conquer you. And that is partially correct, that Isaiah sees Assyria as an instrument of judgment and refinement of the people of Judah. But the Rabshaka, you know, he's been kind of twisting the story of Hezekiah, and now he's going to kind of twist the story uh, of Yahweh sending them and going to take it to a whole new blasphemous level. When he stops and he takes things too far and he says, do not let Hezekiah mislead you by saying, the Lord will save us. Has any of the gods of the nations saved their land out of the hand of the king of Assyria? Where are the gods of Hamath and Arpad? Where are the gods of Sepharvaim? Have they delivered Samaria out of my hand? Who among all the gods of these countries have saved their countries out of my hand that the Lord should save Jerusalem out of my hand? So he's actually taking this even a step further and basically saying, who is Yahweh to save you? None of these other gods have rescued their people. And what makes you think you're going to be any different, full of himself, full of the the power that Assyria has. As Isaiah has been pointing out, those that think they're all that are soon going to find out that they are crumbling, that they are falling away, that their time will come. So the Rabshaka, speaking on behalf of the king of Assyria, has now basically said, and who is Yahweh anyway? And the officials of Judah offer no reply. They go and they tell Hezekiah of the message. And Hezekiah, hearing that message, tears his clothes and covers himself in sackcloth. It's this sign of mourning. It's this sign that we are, we are coming and we are pouring out everything of who we are in front of God. And we are just in this, this moment of distress and lament. Hezekiah says that this day is a day of distress, of rebuke and of disgrace. Children have come to the birth and there is no strength to bring them forth. Hezekiah sees that Assyria, what Assyria has done. He's seen all of the the kingdoms that they have conquered and he knows he's up against a real force. He knows that other kingdoms have succumbed to Assyria. And in the ancient worldview, other gods have fallen to Assyria. And perhaps Hezekiah has some questions about his own faith. And yet he hopes that Yahweh will rebuke these words. Isaiah tells Hezekiah, do not be afraid. Yahweh is going to fight on Judah's behalf. This cupbearer, this official, hears news of the king of Assyria fighting elsewhere in the kingdom, trying to put down other uh, rebellions. And he warns Hezekiah not to put too much trust in his God. And what does Hezekiah do? He goes and he prays. That's the first thing he does. First thing he turns to is to go and to pray. Later, we're going to get to the story of chapter 38. Eventually, Hezekiah gets deathly sick after this this episode with Assyria. Isaiah tells Hezekiah to get his affairs in order. This sickness is going to be the end of Hezekiah. Hezekiah goes. He pleads with Yahweh and he weeps, pouring out his heart. 
when faced with adversity, we see this in several places, Hezekiah turning to prayer. Not taking other steps until he can go and he can pray. In these moments of testing, these moments of anguish, he prays. So there's an intensity to these prayers for protection and for healing. Hezekiah goes and he prays as if his prayers will make a difference. Hezekiah doesn't doesn't go and just kind of throw up these last-ditch prayers. He prays as if it's going to make a difference. It's going to do something. It's going to make a, a change in Hezekiah's situation. He believes that and he prays with passion. Yahweh seems to act actually because of the prayers of Hezekiah. Isaiah 37, verse 21, Yahweh says, Because you have prayed to me concerning King uh, Sennacherib of Assyria, this is the word that the Lord has spoken concerning him. And so when this king of Assyria comes, God acts because Hezekiah has prayed. And when Hezekiah gets sick later, God will say, I have heard your prayer, I have seen your tears, and God will change the course of action, will change the, the, what is going to happen to Hezekiah because Hezekiah has stopped to pray. Hezekiah believes his prayers make a difference. It's one of these odd things about God that the unchangeable, all-knowing God of the universe actually seems to change his mind when his people pray. It happens in several places throughout Scripture. Uh, Abraham is told about Sodom and Gomorrah. God is going to pour down his judgment. and, And Abraham stops and he is bargaining with God. Well, what if we find 50 righteous people? What if we find... 20 righteous people. What about 10 righteous people? And it's actually seeming to make a difference with God. There's this episode where where Moses has received uh, the commandments and and yet God knows that down on the mountain, uh, down at the foot of the mountain, the people are complaining and they're building idols. They're completely rejecting God who has just saved them out of Egypt. and, And God is ready to just get rid of the whole lot and start over again. And Moses pleads with God to change his mind, and God does it. In fact, I was, I was listening to a, a podcast this week from the, the Bible Project, and they were actually talking about uh, prayer. And uh, they were pointing out that there's a story in Jeremiah chapter 7 where God actually forbids Jeremiah uh, from praying for the people because God has already decided the action He's already made up his mind, and he doesn't want Jeremiah to change it. The all-knowing, all-powerful God of the universe hears our prayers, and it does something. I don't have that all worked out. I don't understand all of how that, you know, what that means, what that does. But I've got these stories throughout Scripture where people come and pray and pour their heart and soul out and and God hears it. And He's moved with compassion because as people stop and pray, 
seems to impact the heart of God. So God hears our prayers and God acts. You know, prayer, though, is also something that we are meant to practice. We're given these two stories of Hezekiah in, in, in kind of a crisis situation, and in these crisis situations, he stops and he prays. But I have to believe that these are not the only times that Hezekiah stops and comes and prays. There's a, a, an apparent relationship between Hezekiah and God. Because in these stories out of 2 Kings, we see Hezekiah trying to restore the worship of the one true God. And to me, that says that there's some kind of relationship. There's something happening. Hezekiah wants other people to experience and know this relationship with the one true God. And so I have to believe that these are not the only two incidents where Hezekiah practices prayer. And I have to believe, too, that when Hezekiah comes in the way that he does, and I mean, he's not really pulling any punches. He's letting God know exactly how he feels. He's lamenting. He's mourning. He, he, he's, he's just pouring out his soul to God. I have to believe that that comes from a practice of prayer. It would be hard for me to come before God Almighty one time and just say, God, you've screwed up. Here's my situation, all of this stuff. It would be hard to do that unless you had practiced this conversation with God. Unless you had come in the presence of the Almighty before. Prayer takes practice. And I can say that I'm probably guilty of this. Uh, I'm not looking for a raise of hands this morning, uh, but I wonder if you've ever been out of the habit of praying, just going about your days and then something big, one of these crisis situations comes along and suddenly we, suddenly we lift up our prayers, right? I, I trust I'm not the only one that's done that. And maybe it doesn't work. Maybe our last ditch effort doesn't work. Our prayer, like we think it should happen, is not answered in the way we think it should be. I wonder if it's because we're out of practice for how to really come and pray. I know when I was in middle school or high school, again, maybe this only happened to me. I trust that our youth are far more studious than I was I would, I would have a test, and I knew full well I hadn't really studied for the test. And then I was shocked when I got the results that I did, right? Does that ever happen? I, maybe it does, maybe it doesn't. Because we didn't put in the time, because I didn't put in the time. I didn't put in the effort. I had this professor in college, and it always killed me when he prayed before this exam. Hey, God, please bring to mind that which we've put there through hours of study. <laughs> and I always thought, God, I was hoping for more of a miracle than that. <laughs> we come and we need to practice it. And so it is with prayer. Hezekiah seemed to have some kind of prayer life that in these moments of struggle, 
It's the first place he goes. Not to, not to rally the troops, not to you know, figure out the defense of Jerusalem. For all I know, that is a part of the story. It's not the part that Isaiah thinks is most important for us to hear. Isaiah wants us to hear that Hezekiah's first place to turn is to go to God in prayer. I like that Hezekiah's prayer pretty much just lays it out there for God. In mourning, in lament, in weeping, I, you know, I don't know if you just open up your, your Bible and you read through quotations just kind of straight and, and, and you're just kind of reciting their words, but there's emotion in those words and you can't read those words of Hezekiah and not, not feel some kind of emotion, some kind of desperation in Hezekiah's words in either of these situations. Richard Foster says this about prayer. Jesus taught us to come like children to a father. Openness, honesty, and trust mark the communication of children with their father. And I hear that in Hezekiah, coming before God. and Laying it all out. Here's what I'm up against. Here's what your people are up against. Here's the struggle I'm facing. Hezekiah prays for his people and their deliverance from their enemies. He prays for his own healing in, in chapter 38. And so Hezekiah is bringing big societal problems that have the nations in an uproar. And he's also bringing his own health concerns and pleading to God in both cases. He's bringing it all before God. The big thing. The, you know, the challenges that are facing the nations, Hezekiah stopping and bringing it before God. The things that impact Hezekiah directly, his, his health, uh, the welfare of his family, he, he's bringing directly before God. Big, small, he's bringing it all. I think constantly coming to the Lord in prayer is something learned and practiced. It's not something that at least comes naturally to me. It's something that has to be learned and practiced, and which means that when you practice something, sometimes you do really well and, and sometimes you don't. And you, you get up and, and you practice again. That's what this faith thing is. It's, it's journeying with Jesus and sometimes we trip and fall and, and we, we just get up and we, we keep going and, and we find that there is a Savior there every time to pick us up, to lift us up, to carry us through. Faith in Jesus is an apprenticeship. It's a, a process of learning, of trial and error and that includes our prayer life. But I also want you to see something else in this passage. I also know that we do not come alone in prayer. Sometimes the situations are such that it's not just ourselves that need to come and kneel in prayer, but we need the prayers of others. 
And we need to be in prayer with others. And sometimes when we just don't have the words, we need others to surround us in prayer. Hezekiah declares a time of mourning for his people when the king of Assyria comes. When the messenger brings this message. And so the people are praying and pouring out their hearts together. So look, this morning, maybe you're facing some major obstacles like Hezekiah. Monumental crises or uh, major personal health concerns or anxiety about the return of going, you know, going back to school or, or sending your kids back to school or whatever it is. These are words from James chapter 5. Are any among you suffering? They should pray. Are any cheerful? They should sing songs of praise. Are any among you sick? They should call for the elders of the church and have them pray over them, anointing them with oil in the name of the Lord. At Spring Creek, this is something we continue to practice. So in a moment, I'll invite you. if, If you just need somebody else to lift up some prayers for you. And you need to come and have that special sense that God is with you, surrounding you through the monumental crises, through uh, the moments of anxiety, or, or through the, the small, what you think are small challenges that you're facing. I'll invite you to come. I'll pray with you and anoint you. Understanding there is no magic potion in the oil, but that in our praying, in our consecrating, in the pouring out of oil and the pouring out of our hearts before God, we trust that God hears and we trust that God acts. I also want to invite you, if you're joining online, either right now live or you're going to be joining later and you'd like to receive anointing, I'd invite you to call into the office, to email, to call me, and and I'd love to set something up to come and visit with a a deacon and and anoint you in your home or wherever you're at. Um, I, I want to extend that invitation to you that aren't physically gathered with us this morning as well. During this time, we'll just have some, some music playing, and, and uh, even if you're not uh, feeling a need for anointing, it's a moment where you can be reflecting, praying, praying for others that are coming this morning, uh, praying for the, your own uh, situations that you're facing, praying for the national crises and, and the things that are happening in our world around us. It's a moment that we can all be in prayer. And so I invite you come to prayer, and I invite those of you that uh, desire to be anointed this morning to come. So now we leave this space of worship, and while so much of the road ahead is uncertain, the path constantly changing, we know some things that are as solid and sure as the ground beneath our feet and the sky above our heads. We know God is love. We know Christ's light endures. We know the Holy Spirit is there, found in the space between all things, closer to us than our next breath, binding us to each other until we meet again. Go in peace. 
you are sent.